Hi there, and welcome to this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire. We've all heard of the prodigal son, right? But what about the prodigal father? Continuing our current sermon series, looking at Jesus' parable of the prodigal son from a certain point of view, here's the message entitled, The Mercy Run. Jake's got something to tell you. And when he does, just don't get mad at him. Now there's something no father ever wants to hear. Story goes like this. We were up to camp one summer years ago now. Our oldest son, Jake, he was around 10 or 11 years old at the time. And, and like a lot of kids that age, he had been assigned some summer reading to be done before school started up again in September. And like a lot of parents of kids that age, given that it was now August and he really hadn't gotten the reading done, we were having to push Jake to get it done. So with that in mind, we had asked him, told him really, that he needed to spend one hour a day doing his summer reading. And one afternoon, as a way of keeping him on task and so that he didn't have to sit there reading any longer than necessary, I gave him my wristwatch so that he could tell when the hour was up. That all sounded good to him and to me. But as I left him, being the trusting and yet cautious and overly skeptical parent of a 10-year-old, of course, I said this to my son. Just be careful with it now. I don't want you losing my watch. Well, guess what happened? <laughs> That's right. No sooner than Jake had perched himself atop one of the big rocks that stand along the hillside of our lake to start his hour of reading, the watch, which was way too big for him anyway, slipped off his wrist and fell through one of the crevices of the rock, falling completely out of sight and totally way out of reach. As I understand it, Jake and his mother spent the better part of an hour trying to retrieve the watch by any means possible, but alas, it was gone forever. And that's why, since I'd been out somewhere when all this was going on, about another hour passed, got home, and I was met in the driveway of the camp by my lovely wife and the mother of my children, who warned me, don't you get mad at our son. <laughs> okay. Though I have to confess, that was all she told me. And I was immediately filled with curiosity as to exactly what it was I wasn't supposed to get mad at him for. And moreover, how was I supposed to respond to this as of yet undisclosed transgression, what the punishment might actually need to be, and how's he ever going to learn if I'm at least not firm with him a little bit about this? Oh, good grief, how bad is this anyway? So here comes Jake. We have this long set of, of cement stairs going up the hill, and he's walking up those stairs to meet me. His face is to the ground. He's barely looking up. But when he finally does look up at me, I can see that his eyes are all red. They're puffy from having been crying, apparently a lot. 
And after a long silence that seemed like forever, Jake finally says, Dad, kind of lost your watch. I'm sorry. Now, at this point, his eyes still brimming with tears, Jake's explaining what happened, all the while watching me and waiting on my reaction because, you know, you've been there when you were a kid, maybe even now. You figure at this point, your very life is about to come to an end. But I looked at my son, and he looked at me, and any inclination I might have had at that moment to say to him, what did I tell you, young man? Or, you are grounded for life, mister. Or, well, that's the last time I trust you with anything of mine. All of that dissolved away with the realization that this accident had really upset my son, the son who I loved. And he was obviously very sorry for what happened. And you know what? After all, it was just a watch. No reason for either of us to get all that upset. Now, even all these years later, I don't remember exactly what I said in that moment. But I do remember that I gave Jake a hug and a kiss. And in one of those rare moments of grace when I actually said the right thing, I said something to the effect of, eh, that's all right. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I love you. And as I was hugging him, got to tell you, I remember this very clearly. I literally felt the burden of guilt and fear and uncertainty go out from him. And that happened because immediately everything was all right again. Just a small moment in the life of a family. The kind of thing that happens between parents and their children all the time through the course of their relationship. But love and forgiveness prevailed as it always should. But I'll be honest with you. The memory of something as small and as simple as the lost watch incident always gets me to thinking about how big the transgression has to be before love and forgiveness doesn't prevail. Truth be told, we all know of times and situations when the conflict at hand isn't so easily resolved. So what happens then when the sin becomes so great, the sinner so hopeless, that the restoration of the relationship just isn't possible anymore? And if, if such a thing can, such a fracture can happen in a family or between two people or between two groups, two nations, I, I wonder if that kind of thing can happen between us and God. If the definition of sin, we talked about this last week, if the definition of sin is that which separates us from the God, is it possible that the sin can separate us forever? Seems to me that this is one of the underlying questions that runs all through Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, particularly when we approach that story from a certain point of view, that of the father who had two sons, one of whom, who we talked about last week, the younger son, so-called prodigal son, had sinned greatly against his father. 
Because remember, and, and we talked about this last week too, the fact that the younger son had come to his father and demanded his share of the family inheritance, it was much more than essentially asking for an advance on the share of the property or advance on his allowance, if you will. It was an affront. It was an affront to the father, to the family business, and to the family name. This act of the younger son was essentially an act of wishing his father dead. So the prodigal, you see, had created a conflict that essentially, and in all practicality, tore his family apart, and there really didn't seem like there was any hope of restoration at all. Son took his money, he said, so long, Dad, and he took off to live in, as they say, reckless living. Well, that in of itself was an egregious act. But here's the thing we don't often notice here. The prodigal's actions affected more than just his father or his older brother or the family name. It most certainly would have not gone unnoticed by the community around him. This is because in Jesus' day, the culture of Palestinian villages was one of honor and shame, with honor and shame having everything to do with how you were perceived in the community. Now, once word got around about this, and trust me, word got around quickly because words always get around in small towns, no matter where you happen to be. Once word got around that this son had brought shame on his father, and his whole family, for that matter, by his behavior, he would in turn be shamed by the entire village. In fact, and I really didn't know this until I started digging deep into this custom, it was a custom that if this prodigal ever dared to show his face back in town again, he could expect that the townspeople would immediately conduct a ceremony called a gasesa ceremony in which the townspeople would gather around this young man, they would humiliate him with their anger and their resentment at his actions, they would break jars filled with burnt corn and nuts at his feet so that the smell would be overwhelming, and they would declare that he was to be completely cut off from the life of the village. So suffice us to say here that there would be consequences for the prodigal's actions that went way beyond the very real possibility of his ending up one of his father's servants. He would, could be shunned by the whole town. Which is what makes it all the more interesting, and, and may I say miraculous, that while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Or if I might combine how a couple of other translations have described this moment, his heart pounding, he ran out, he enfolded him in an embrace, and he kissed him. Well, no matter how you translate it, how you word it, what we have here in, in this brief centerpiece of the prodigal son story is one of the most beautifully vivid and wonderfully inappropriate scenes in all of Holy Scripture. 
And when I say inappropriate, by that I mean there was really a whole lot wrong with what the father was doing. To begin with, as the late theologian Kenneth Bailey, one of the premier experts on Middle Eastern culture, as he pointed out, in the Mediterranean, old men do not run. They just don't run. Because it's not only shameful when you run, because your ankles are going to be exposed, it also indicates a lack of dignity, a lack of control. Old men in the Mediterranean do not run to meet or welcome anyone, and especially they don't run to meet their children. So think about that for a minute. Can you imagine it? Here's this old man. He drops whatever he's doing. He runs across the field like he's some little kid or something. He is stumbling right through the crops. Maybe he's even running across the, the town square. And he's holding up his robe the whole time as he's running. His legs are exposed right up to the thighs. He does what I have to do every Sunday when I go up these stairs so I don't trip over myself. And it's all because... He's caught a glimpse, just a glimpse, mind you, far off in the distance of his son. This child of his, who he's had to assume was lost and gone forever, maybe even dead. But who was there and was on his way home? Now, some biblical scholars suggest that the father's impulsive run across the field may well have had something to do with his desire to shield his son from the judgment of the townspeople. That's an interesting thought. And, and in other words, he's figuring, I'll get to him before they do. That might be true. But you know what? Ultimately, I suspect what Jesus was trying to convey here in the part of this story is just how much love and compassion and mercy this father had for his son. For you see, if the definition of prodigal, and this comes from the Oxford Dictionary, if the definition of prodigal is to spend one's resources freely and recklessly or to be wastefully extravagant, then what we have here, from a certain point of view, remember, is the story of the prodigal father. That's right. The prodigal father. In the words of Methodist pastor and author, the Reverend Grace Imathieu, prodigal means too much. It means extravagant, overflowing, unconstrained, like a mother who forgets all the cultural codes and overjoyed falls on a returning son's neck, embracing him and kissing him. Prodigal is the reckless dishing out of heaped helpings of mercy, dishing out extravagant portions of love. So friends, what we have here in this parable of Jesus is a story of a father's joyous and loving mercy run across the field of conflict and separation, and, and, and which answers the question I posed earlier. Is there a time or a situation or a conflict so hopeless that the restoration of the relationship just isn't possible anymore? Well, the good news is, the answer is not if God has anything to do with it. 
Did you notice in that story that Kay shared with us earlier that the returning son had barely gotten the words of his well-rehearsed confession and apology out of his mouth? He didn't even have a chance to get to the part about being his father's hired hand before his father is interrupting and calling for a celebration. Quick! The father calls out to his servants. Bring the best robe we have. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. All of which, by the way, were symbols of reinstatement to sonship and a well-to-do house in biblical times. Go get the fatted calf and butcher it, the father shouts. Let's have a feast and celebrate because my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's been found. So let's have a party. It's an incredible, if kind of unexpected, response from his father. His father, who, who had every reason in the world to turn his back on a son who had sinned against him and who had rejected him. You know, or at the very least, from our way of thinking, you would have expected at least some level of justice to go down, some sort of consequence, maybe in the form of the younger son having to to face a punishment of some sort. But that's not the case here, you see. You've got to remember, too, that this parable of Jesus was originally directed at the grumbling scribes and Pharisees who, who were all upset at Jesus for hanging around sinners and who were very, very big on the consequences for sin. But according to Jesus, that's not how God sees it at all. In fact, as he'd already said in the parable of a lost sheep and of the lost coin, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Turns out that our God, our loving, caring, forgiving God, is willing to do every mile of the mercy run if it means it will bring us back together with him. In the words of Vicki Matson, when is the table filled to overflowing? When kindness abounds, when love begets more love and generosity gives birth to forgiveness. Those kinds of feasts can only come from a God who is amazing, open-hearted, and extravagant beyond comprehension. So it was for the relationship between the prodigal son and his prodigal father. And so it is for you and for me and this God of grace who loves us so completely, so recklessly, so relentlessly that he will stop at nothing to welcome us home and enfold us in his embrace. You know that watch that Jake lost in the crevice of the rock on that fateful summer afternoon so many years ago? Well, believe it or not, years later, we actually found that watch. <laughs> Apparently, like I said, we have rocks all the way along our, our property there, and the movement of summer waves, water rising and falling, winter ice dislodged the watch from where it had fallen, and that particular spring, we found it lying there on the edge of the lake. 
And the best part? The watch still worked. As Timex used to say, it took a licking, but kept on ticking. Well, it seems to me, when it comes to God's relationship with us, it is true that so much of what was lost in our lives, in our relationships, in our journeys, can be found again. And what we consider in our lives and hearts that is dead and gone can and will be made alive again by God's graceful forgiveness and this relentless, reckless love. And because we are given that by this loving God, we keep going. We keep on ticking. Life goes on. Things do get better. Maybe they're not the same as before. Maybe lessons are learned. Maybe uh, insights are gained. Maybe we find new meaning and new purpose. And it's all because we expected, all because what we expected, maybe even what we deserved, didn't happen. But instead, we found a place in the heavenly celebration of redemption and divine love. It is truly amazing grace and more than enough reason to make life a grand celebration. Of course, not everybody feels that way about that. Some people, let's just say they kind of resent when other people get celebrated. They have a different point of view, shall we say. But that's a story for another time. In the meantime, we also have a feast of celebration. It's waiting for us at the Lord's table. We've been invited. The table has been set. Our Lord requests the honor of our presence. And we really ought to go. So thanks be to God. Amen. And that's the message entitled, The Mercy Run, part of our current sermon series that we're calling From a Certain Point of View, all about the story of the prodigal son. It was recorded during our October the 2nd service of worship at East Congregational Church here in Concord, New Hampshire, where, by the way, we invite you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at the church on 51 Mountain Road, which is just off exit 16 of I-93 in Concord. I would love to have the chance to welcome you, and I know you'll be glad you came. And that's it for this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. Thanks for listening, and until next time, may God bless you with a great day every day. We'll talk to you soon.